0: Most of us find the healthcare system totally confusing. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust in getting better healthcare. Dr. Steve Feldman and his expert guests walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take charge of our own and our family's health care and what needs to be done for a healthier medical system. It's time to find out what to do. Now, here's Steve.
1: Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare. I'm Steve Feldman. Today, we have an important topic to discuss, the recently changed recommendations concerning breast cancer screening. Breast cancer is a terrible disease. It kills people, one of the most common cause of cancer deaths in women. Oncologists say that these new recommendations confuse people and may result in needless deaths. Some have suggested that the task force have ignored the lives of the women who can be saved. The task force that put out these recommendations, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, or USPSTF, is, I believe, trustworthy, reputable, independent, and unbiased. I've done some research on patients' preventative health care needs, and when I did, I used the USPSTF recommendations as a gold standard and it was a standard that no one questioned. In fact, the USPSTF doesn't recommend annual skin cancer screening. They just don't feel the evidence proves it helps patients overall. Breast cancer, however, is a critically important issue because it regularly kills people. To discuss this issue with us today, we have Dr. John Stewart. John is an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at the Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center. He's a member of the Comprehensive Cancer Center there. He did his surgery residency training at Temple and Vanderbilt, and then he did a fellowship at the National Cancer Institute. Welcome to the program, John. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. Well, you're a cancer surgeon, and breast cancer has been in the news. Uh, There's been a lot said about uh, the controversial new guidelines that have come out. I want to start at the beginning, though. Let's talk, just in general, about breast cancer. Um, Who gets it, uh, how common it is, uh, why is it such a big problem?
0: So breast cancer actually afflicts about one in eight women in the United States. This is significant because over the past 15 years, that number's gone from 1 in 11, excuse me, from 1 in 11 to about 1 in 8. Wow. Um, Not only are the raw numbers impressive, but if you uh, take a step back and look at the women who actually diagnosed with breast cancer, you can find some uh, pretty uh, significant trends. First of all, uh, breast cancer um, can be found in women who are very young and beginning to uh, raise their families and make, and make significant contributions in terms of uh, their businesses and their jobs. Uh, breast cancer, however, um, really disrupts a lot of that, and subsequently. Um, impacts upon the victim's ability to uh, contribute to the economy.
1: Mm-hmm. You, you about, know, I um, I take care of patients with skin cancer. It it rarely kills people, especially the ones that aren't melanoma. But breast cancer kills people.
0: Correct. Now, uh, interestingly, the uh, death rate from breast cancer um, is starting to improve, and I think that that is uh, I think thankfully we're able to uh, contribute that to uh, much of the research that is done on breast cancer in terms of understanding how early prevention um, and treatment impacts upon uh, breast cancer survival, as well as understanding the biology of the disease and understanding how uh, groups that are um, disproportionately affected by this disease um, can have better outcomes.
1: I understand that managing breast cancer is a pretty complex issue involving more than just one kind of doctor.
0: The fact that breast cancer is, or the, or the treatment of breast cancer is fairly complex, um, many groups, including ours at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine, um, treat women with breast cancer in multi modality uh, clinics. Now, these multi modality clinics are important because, um, in one stop, uh, victims of breast cancer are seen by their surgical oncologist, medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, and uh, plastic surgeon. At that point, they're able to uh, understand the pros and cons of um, breast conservation therapy, which includes a lumpectomy um, plus radiation therapy, or a mastectomy. They're also um, given the um, they're also given the opportunity to uh, talk with their medical oncologist about the potential need for chemotherapy um, and/or um, hormonal modulation with their uh, medical oncologist. And so, these multidisciplinary clinics. Um, give women an opportunity to um, have one-stop shopping. Now, the way that we conduct our clinic is that um, a woman's case is discussed prior to her being seen in clinic by all of the participants in the multidisciplinary clinic that day. Her mammograms are looked at, her MRIs, if, uh, if included, um, are all looked at uh, by the treating team. Uh, the treating team then sees the patient. And our coordinators then uh, coordinate the interaction of the physicians to come up with a uh, solid treatment plan for those individuals.
1: This is a uh, – just listen to you describe it. This is a lot. And and I'm sure that, well, our family has been touched. My personal family has been touched by breast cancer. And, and I know this is a very emotional um, uh, time. It has a huge impact on people just to hear it. And then to have to hear about all these different modalities – and, and decisions—it's—it's a—it's tr- a tremendous amount to 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 take in. There are resources, I understand, to help people.
0: So there are resources uh, to help um, individuals with breast cancer, and so uh, there are national resources that are available uh, through the internet. Um, and we'll discuss those first, and then we'll kind of drill down to the resources that are available at a local um, level. So with respect to a national level, um, the internet tends to be a very, very good um, education tool. Uh, there are websites such as the American Cancer Society, um, the um, the National Cancer Institute, and the Susan Komen Foundation that are uh, dedicated to uh, helping uh, women with newly diagnosed breast cancer kind of understand the foundations of their treatment and help them um, gain at least a basic understanding of what their treatment options are, um, if their disease um, stage is appropriately treated with mastectomy versus lumpectomy, and it provides them at least the initial uh, data with which to kind of analyze what their situation is.
1: Let let me stop you there for a second. When we went through it, we looked at all that information, and it, it was great. It's all there. It's still overwhelming, and you're left with, you know, a really difficult decision that, that that you know, I, I believe patients should be empowered, and they, they need to be educated. And then you do it for this, and yet you still need guidance.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, to me, that is why going to a center that uh, is, Focused on treating breast cancer and has the appropriate support groups um, to kind of help women navigate that complex treatment uh, paradigm. Very, very, very important. So, uh, usually, a woman's first point of contact um, when they go to a large breast cancer center would be the breast care coordinators um, or the breast cancer navigators. So, in our center, the breast cancer coordinators. Are involved with um, getting women into our multidisciplinary clinic they're involved with um, educating the women about, uh, about breast cancer and kind of uh, giving them a, a i would say a slower version of what they found find on the internet. You know to me, the mouth of a funnel is the internet information, and the coordinators and the and the patient educators are able to kind of help funnel that information down into kind of bite-sized pieces. That people can kind of understand that. Now, uh, our coordinators are very good at that because they're able to uh, they're able to kind of take the data and understand what a patient, a patient and a patient's family's emotional state is, and kind of understand how much of that information to to give them and help them understand that. Now, at our institution, we also have uh, patient navigators. Um, fortunately, our patient navigators. Um, have very broad experiences. One um, navigator was a case manager, um, and the other has more of a social work background, uh, excuse me, a nurse case manager, and the other has more of a, a social worker case management background. And these women are geared toward navigating uh, women from underserved populations through uh, the breast cancer paradigm, treatment paradigm. Now, the navigation concept actually came from uh, Harold Freeman when he was at the um Harlem Hospital, and he use the term navigators because it helps women kind of navigate a difficult storm, which is breast cancer, a uh, breast cancer diagnosis. And so what our navigators, um, the Survivors and Service Network navigators, have been able to do is they've been able to not only help educate women about breast cancer uh, treatment, but they've also been able to educate women um, about breast cancer uh, diagnoses. They've been able to provide social services so that uh, women from underserved populations can help complete, or can potentially complete, the complex treatment uh, paradigm of uh, breast cancer. We do know that um, some of the disparities that are associated with breast cancer are due to the fact um, that women um, of of different socioeconomic statuses often have different abilities to complete um, the treatment uh, plan just based upon a number of reasons, and those reasons can include their inability to get off of work, the inability to um, to get to the treatment facility, or even things that many of us take for granted, such as the need for social services to, to help pay the rent or help keep the electricity on. And so, again, uh, there's so many things outside of just pure medicine that are involved in the treatment of uh, breast cancer.
1: When my wife and I uh, went through this, We looked at all this information and all, and and we had our first visit with the surgical oncologist. And you know, they may not do this in front of you, John. But people joke, you know, you go to Midas, you get a muffler. You go to a surgeon, you're going to get cut. When we went to the surgical oncologist, I was just amazed how much time they took with us, how understanding they were about the the issues with regard to these very personal decisions about what kind of surgery to have. Uh, i was I was truly amazed by the quality of that interaction. Thank you now um in addition to empowering people through for example the internet to educate themselves about their disease, people in the cancer and particular breast cancer world, I think are also empowered to work towards improving outcomes through getting together, getting organized, working through patient advocacy groups, getting more funding for the disease, getting more research funded. That's been a big change for breast cancer over the years, hasn't it?
0: Right. So I think that one of the reasons that breast cancer um, has had such an improvement in prognosis over the years is the fact that there's a strong advocacy group for breast cancer, Uh, women by and large tend to um, they tend to um, survive the disease and uh, survive the disease actually empowers them to devote energy toward many organizations so these are grassroots organizations that are local in nature all the way up to national organizations uh, such as the Susan Komen, Susan B. Komen Foundation now not only do they raise money um, through those private organizations for uh, research and uh, patient support, but they're also important because uh, because they're active in terms of national programs to the government. Uh, they're able to uh, go to their government and say, look, you have a very large constituency that has survived breast cancer and we feel that it is appropriate that the government provides a significant amount of dollars to uh, breast cancer research. Now, that the prioritization of that money is evident in the fact that there is a pretty significant investment by the National Cancer Institute on breast cancer, and there's also a pretty significant investment by the Department of Defense through their uh, biomedical research grants toward breast cancer. Now, the funds from the Department of Defense, interestingly, range anything from pilot funding for or idea grants all the way up to large um, project grants. And so, again, they can the organization of breast cancer uh, survivors has made a tremendous impact um, and, and hopefully will allow us to make more significant advances in the treatment of the disease.
1: You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare. I'm Steve Fellman, and our guest today is John Stewart, a surgical oncologist at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. We've been talking about the advances made in breast cancer. One of the major ways in which breast cancer mortality has been improved is through screening, through catching the disease earlier, getting patients treated at a stage when they're curable. Those guidelines for screening have recently changed. That's resulted in all sorts of controversy and perhaps even some confusion John, I'm sure our listeners want to hear this straight, and 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 you sound like just the person to 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 tell us. Where what were the screening recommendations? What did the committee new recommendations entail, and and uh, why did they why did they make those changes?
0: So generally, um, in most uh, organizations, including the American Cancer Society, recommended that uh, women begin annual screening using mammography and clinical breast examination um, for women at at the general risk of breast cancer beginning at the age of 40. However, the uh, United States Preventive Services Task Force, or the USP STF, announced that, uh, that they were changing the recommendations um, for um, screening mammography and they recommended that women actually start uh, screening mammograms at the age of fifty um if you really step back and take a look at uh at this move by the u s p s t f it's a move that was kind of based upon uh fuzzy statistics okay so the u s p s t f actually stated that in order to save one life from breast cancer and a woman who was in the fifth in her fifties you would have to screen one thousand three hundred and thirty nine women. They stated that to save that same one life in a woman who was in her forties, you had to screen one thousand nine hundred and four patients or roughly about six hundred more patients to to get one life of benefit and so they said that that one life, although you know worth saving you actually had to say you actually had to screen. So more women in the age of forty that um, the risk did not outweigh the benefits, so what are the risk of mammography what are the risks associated with mammography? Well, not a whole lot I mean there is some discomfort that is associated with it, but other than that, um, at least all of the physicians that I've kind of spoken with about these recommendations uh, we don't really feel as though. Uh, the statistical analysis that they that the uh, panel did actually warranted them um, changing the, the mammogram guidelines.
1: Let me um, just read specifically what it says about ages forty to forty nine in those guidelines. So, the USPSTF recommends against routine screening mammography in women age forty to forty nine. The decision to start regular biennial screening mammography before the age of fifty years should be an individual one and take into account patient context, including the patient's values regarding specific benefits and harms. So on the one hand, they no longer say at 40 every year you should have it, but they don't quite say when you're younger than 50, you shouldn't have it. What they say is when you're between 40 and 50, you should weigh the benefits and risks.
0: Right. So, and, and let's kind of talk about the risk of uh, of not having your screening, okay? So, again, the, uh, the risk of having a mammogram, those risks are minimal. But we, what you have to do is you have to take those numbers and put them into the context and understand that uh, roughly about 15 to 17% of breast cancer deaths occurred in women who are 40 years of age. Now, we know that women who are under 40 tend to have more aggressive breast cancer and so you know if you've got it when you're forty it's it's not necessarily a good situation. I also understand that between twenty and twenty five percent of uh, breast cancer deaths occurred in women who are fifty years of age. so again, in terms of percentages, the percent of women dying of breast cancer is higher than the age of fifty, but that is because there are more women who get breast cancer at the age of fifty. Again, breast cancer is not an insidious disease if you 're forty years of age, and so it's imperative that women continue to get early screening and do good cl- have good clinical examinations.
1: I suspect that you've talked to many more physicians about this than I have. I had heard one discussion between a primary care doctor and a medical oncologist, and the medical oncologist, like you said, well, of course you want to screen. The benefits, you save lives. The risks of screening are minimal. I don't see any risks of screening. But then the primary care doctor said, well, you're seeing the patients who have cancer. I'm seeing all the ones who have the um, the positive results and don't have cancer. I see all the false positives. I see the women who become depressed because of the false positive result. I see in my practice, this primary care doctor said, actual morbidity in those 40 to 50-year-olds who – had mammography who had a positive result but didn't really have the disease is it, you don't think that's much of an issue
0: um i would have to say um in response to that that um, we do understand that there are some false positives associated with mammography but again I, you know understanding the fact that many women who are, uh, are diagnosed at early stages in their 40s are diagnosed um simply because of mammography. Mm-hmm. And um and so I think that is essential for us to continue screening and understanding uh, that again 15% of the deaths that are caused from breast cancer are caused uh, in these women who who are younger than age or in their 40s. And so um again I would at any day accept the risk of having a false positive uh, relative to having a 15% death rate from breast cancer.
1: Well, I think your point's pretty clear. Um, these recommendations, you're going to, you and, 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 and other medical oncologists, surgical oncologists, are going to do their best to get rid of the controversy, to continue to encourage women to have their screening mammography. Do you think these recommendations are going to have other effects? I think people wonder if it's going to affect how insurance deals with with this issue.
0: Right. And so, in my mind, the, the previous recommendations of clinical examination and mammography at age of 40 for women and average risk of breast cancer, okay, we're not talking about women who have strong family histories, but average risk of breast cancer are pretty clear. Um now if now that the panel has come out with this recommendation there is there has the potential of being um significant discussion among insurance companies as to whether or not they're going to continue to pay for mammograms um in women at average risk before they turn 50 years of age and i think that this recommendation is going to uh it's going to muddy the waters of screening okay
1: yeah, yes, let's, let's hope not. You know, I suspect that since the, the recommendations didn't say don't do it before 50, but, you know, weigh the risks and benefits and do it if appropriate, combined with the strength of those advocacy groups, I'm sure the American Can- Cancer Society and, and and Susan Komen and all the, the, the these, these advocacy groups that are very supportive of, of breast cancer awareness are going to fight to keep – Screening covered
0: so i uh, I would definitely hope that that is the case and uh, and for those individuals listening to this podcast, um, I hope that you would continue to to support those agencies in their fights to uh, make screening mammograms available to to all women
1: you know that's that's one of the things this program tries to encourage patients. You can't rely on national organizations to do it on on their own. They need you. They need your support. They need your involvement. You going into your congressman um, and be, in the sense of being organized with other women and, and getting out there, su- supporting it with funding, supporting it with your feed and your voice really makes a difference. Absolutely. Well the um the big cancer center the comprehensive cancer center that you're a part of I'm sure offers every possible resource but you mentioned earlier that people in the community maybe not having quite such good access to comprehensive care center they may not have all those resources available to them what's what's happening out in the community um regarding care and education and and what do you see as the future of that?
0: So, um, I think that uh, there are a number of of centers, private centers that do very good jobs of taking care of women with breast cancer and if we really think about it, uh, the majority of women who have breast cancer are actually treated in community centers. Um, However, what we do need to understand is that not all populations in community centers receive optimal care. And um, that has been something that I've been passionate about, not only in breast cancer, but also in colorectal cancer, and prostate cancer, and lung cancer. Um, and so what we have done is we've attempted to use the uh, patient navigation model to improve participation and um, screening and improve participation in complex care paradigms. Um, our center uh, just received a, a grant from the National Cancer Institute for about $300,000 to um, grow patient navigation programs um, in uh, Spartansburg, South Carolina, um, for surgical oncology trials in breast, prostate, and colorectal cancer, um, as well as a sister program in Towsing, Maryland, um, to, again, to help try to ameliorate some of the disparities that are seen in cancer care.
1: Well, that's wonderful. That looks like such a positive for the future of of care for folks to to spread the the comprehensive model out and get patients access everywhere. Well, John, I want to thank you for your time today. In this last little bit, uh, sort of a summary, or an opportunity to share with listeners some final thoughts. Anything specific you would tell people that they should be doing to make sure they get better care, to make sure they're healthier, um, either at the personal or even at the system level?
0: So in terms of the personal level, I think that's important for uh, patients to, again, participate in screening. Uh, The second aspect is if you unfortunately um, are diagnosed with cancer, uh, you should empower yourself through knowledge. Uh, knowledge is very important, you should be able to, uh, you should go to your doctor's office with, with a pretty good working knowledge of your disease, with the expected workup and treatment, um, and prognosis should be. Um, the third piece of advice that I would offer to patients is to maintain an open line of communications with your, communication with your physician. Um, I communicate with a lot of my patients by email. It's because it's easier for them to to wake up in the middle of the night, send me a question, and then I can respond to that question via email. Um, And so that's very important. The last piece of information or last piece of advice that I would give is don't go through your cancer treatment alone. Always have a treatment buddy with you because irrespective of of how well-empowered you are um, and how smart you are about your situation, it always helps to have an an extra pair of eyes Um, an extra pair of ears with you when you go through your treatment and you talk with your physician. On a national level, I think it's key to get involved, um, be an an active constituent, um, and actually work with the community groups to bring other people in. If you think about it, if one person recruits another person and that other person recruits two other people, you've got five people right there that are actively fighting cancer, and that continues to grow exponentially. So, again, I I would encourage people to become involved locally and nationally.
1: What wonderful advice. John Stewart, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. As we consider breast cancer screening, let's look specifically at what the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommended. According to their document published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, the USPSTF recommends against routine screening mammography in women ages 40 to 49 The decision to start regular every-other-year screening mammography before the age of 50 should be an individual one and take into account patient context, including patient's values regarding specific benefits and harms. Now, what does that mean? They didn't say don't have screening. In fact, what they said was while they don't recommend it for everybody, women should consider having screening done. I think mean, John Stewart makes clear you really should have the screening done. The USPSTF did not ignore the lives of women who might be saved. They made very clear that, as John pointed out, if if you're in the 50 to 59 age group, there's something like a one in 1,300 um, a, a chance of having your life saved because of screening. Um, For women in the 40 to 50 age group, screening uh, doesn't save no lives. It it saves one in something like 1,900 who are screened. What the uh, task force did do was to weigh those lives against the potential harms of screening in women. Rather than ignore women, in fact, they were very specific in, in, in discussing what harms they were concerned about. They mentioned psychological harms, unnecessary imaging tests, biopsies that were unnecessary in women who don't have cancer. They they talk about inconvenience due to false positive screening results. I think there are some potentially serious psychological harms from false positive screenings. They also talked about the harms associated with treatments of cancer that wouldn't be clinically apparent during the woman's lifetime, something they call overdiagnosis and the harms of unnecessary earlier treatment of breast cancer uh, for those cancers that, again, um, would not have otherwise been clinically apparent and wouldn't have shortened the woman's life. The committee saw that above the age of 50, you, you detect more true positive results and you have less false positives. Between the ages of 40 and 50, while you still detect some cases of breast cancer, there's fewer of them. And more false positives. Look, Dr. John Stewart was very clear. Get screened. If there's a false positive result, take it in stride. Now, if you're someone and you think a false positive uh, result is going to cause you major problems, talk it over with your doctor. And I guess in theory, the risk for somebody like that could be more than the benefit. But screening saves lives. Talk about it with your doctor. John Stewart made some other really important points. If you're given the diagnosis of breast cancer, get educated about it. There's some great online resources. Get involved with patient advocacy. This is a way to become empowered. He mentioned some specific organizations like the Komen Group, the American Cancer Society, and the National Cancer Institute. Let me give you some of their contact information. The Susan G. Komen for the Cure organization can be found online at Komen.org. That's K-O-M-E-N dot O-R-G. The American Cancer Society can be found online at cancer.org, And the National Cancer Institute and their terrific resources can be found at Cancer.gov. That's Cancer.G-O-V. Another resource that I really like is Medline Plus. You can Google that, Medline, M-E-D-L-I-N-E, PLUS, P-L-U-S, all one word, that is a fabulous resource to look up health information. Many of these and other resources for patients are listed online at my website, doctorscore.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E dot com. Finally, you know, at the very beginning of the show, I listed some of John Stewart's credentials. One of the credentials that I didn't mention is that he is a fabulous physician. He's a caring physician, and he makes the point that if you Given the diagnosis of cancer, you need to communicate with your doctor. You need to have a doctor you feel comfortable with. Cancer takes away a lot of of your assurance with life. You want to find a doctor that gives it back to you. And I'll add one other reminder. He said, bring a buddy with you. Bring somebody who can help take notes. I think we found this very helpful because in this time of emotional turmoil, It's even harder to remember than usual what the doctor may have said. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. This is Getting Better Healthcare, and I'm Steve Feldman. I hope you'll join us next time.
0: Thank you for joining us today for Getting Better Healthcare. For more information about Dr. Feldman and about healthcare, please visit DrScore.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, and we'll see you back here next week.